Criminologists point to the decline of the crack trade and the aging of the population. Economists, meanwhile, say that the gradual improvement in the city's economy over the course of the 1990s had the effect of employing those who might otherwise have become criminals. But the demographic changes are all long-term trends happening all over the country. They don't explain why crime plunged in New York City so much more than in other cities around the country. And they don't explain why it all happened in such an extraordinarily short time. How can a change in a handful of economic and social indices cause murder rates to fall by two-thirds in five years? The tipping point is the biography of an idea, and the idea is very simple. Ideas and products and messages and behaviors spread just like viruses do. The rise of hush puppies and the fall of New York's crime rate are textbook examples of epidemics in action. Although they may sound like they don't have very much in common, they share a basic underlying pattern. First of all, they are clear examples of contagious behavior. No one took an advertisement out and told people that the traditional hush puppies were cool and they could start wearing them again. Those kids simply wore the shoes when they went to clubs or cafes or simply walked the streets of downtown New York. And in so doing, they exposed other people to their fashion sense. They infected them with the hush puppy virus. The crime decline in New York surely happened the same way. It wasn't that some huge percentage of would-be murderers suddenly sat up in 1993 and decided not to commit any more crimes. Nor was it that the police managed to magically intervene in a huge percentage of situations that would otherwise have turned deadly. What happened is that the small number of people in the small number of situations in which the police or the new social forces had some impact clearly started behaving very differently. And that behavior somehow spread to other would-be criminals in similar situations. Somehow, an awful lot of people in New York got infected with an anti-crime virus in a short time. The second distinguishing characteristic of these two examples is that in both cases, little changes had big effects. All of the possible reasons for why New York's crime rate dropped are changes that happened at the margin. The crack trade leveled off. The population got a little older. The police force got a little better. Yet the effect was dramatic. So too with hush puppies. How many kids are we talking about who began wearing their shoes in Manhattan? 20? 50? 100 at the most? Yet their actions seem to have single-handedly started an international fashion trend. Finally, both changes happened in a hurry. They didn't build slowly and steadily. Crime didn't taper off. It didn't gently decelerate. Rather, it hit a certain point and jammed on the brakes. These three characteristics, contagiousness, the fact that little changes can have big effects, and the change happens not gradually, but at one dramatic moment, are the same three principles that define how measles move through a grade school classroom or how the flu attacks every winter. Of the three, the third epidemic trait, the idea that epidemics can rise or fall in one dramatic moment, is the most important, because it is the principle that makes sense of the first two and that permits the greatest insight into why modern change happens the way it does. The name given to that one dramatic moment in an epidemic, when everything can change all at once, is the tipping point. A world that follows the rules of epidemics is a very different place from the world we think we live in now. Think for a moment about the concept of contagiousness. If I say that word to you, you think of colds and the flu or perhaps something very dangerous like HIV or Ebola. We have in our minds a very specific biological notion of what contagiousness means. But if there can be epidemics of crime or epidemics of fashion, there must be all kinds of things just as contagious as viruses. Have you ever thought about yawning, for instance? Yawning is a surprisingly powerful act. 
Just by listening to the word yawn in the previous sentences, a good number of you will probably yawn within the next few minutes. If you're listening to this in a public place and you've just yawned, chances are that a good proportion of everyone who saw you yawn is now yawning too. And a good proportion of the people watching the people who watched you yawn are now yawning as well, and on and on at an ever-widening yawning circle. Yawning is incredibly contagious. I made some of you listening to this yawn simply by saying the word yawn. The people who yawned when they saw you yawn, meanwhile, were infected by the sight of you yawning, which is a second kind of contagion. They might even have yawned if they'd only heard you yawn, because yawning is also orally contagious. If you play an audio tape of a yawn to blind people, they'll yawn too. And finally, if you yawned as you heard this, did the thought cross your mind, however unconsciously or fleetingly, that you might be tired? I suspect that for some of you it did, which means that yawns can also be emotionally contagious. Simply by saying the word, I can plant a feeling in your mind. Can the flu virus do that? Contagiousness, in other words, is an unexpected property of all kinds of things, and we have to remember that if we are to recognize and diagnose epidemic change. The second of the principles of epidemics, that little changes can somehow have big effects, is also a fairly radical notion. We are, as humans, heavily socialized to make a kind of rough approximation between cause and effect. If we want to communicate a strong emotion, if we want to convince someone that, say, we love them, we recognize that we need to speak passionately and forthrightly. If we want to break bad news to someone, we lower our voices and choose our words carefully. We are trained to think that what goes into any transaction or relationship or system must be directly related in intensity and dimension to what comes out. Consider, for example, the following puzzle. I give you a large piece of paper, one one-hundredth of an inch thick. That's a typical thickness. I want you to fold it over once and then take the folded paper and fold it.